0: Welcome to the Attractions Crew Podcast. I'm Don Helbig alongside Ryan Sir. Episode number 10, Ryan.
1: How have you been? I've been great. I've been excited about this episode all week. Uh, Just as a reminder, everybody, make sure you follow us on Twitter at attractions underscore GRP so you can interact with us. We've got up to 60 followers right now. Once we hit 100, then Don's gonna start giving away some of his theme park memorabilia. So make sure that you make Mrs. Helbig a happy lady by clearing out part of her garage when Don gives out some special memorabilia to random Twitter followers once we hit 100. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite podcast apps such as Apple and Spotify. And if you wanna do the true experience, then follow us on YouTube at Attractions Group Podcast. Search for that, make sure you give us a subscribe. And uh, we're going to start going live on there, right around golden ticket time, we hope. And then we can start interacting with people with the live chat and, um, you know, giving away some prizes and stuff.
0: Yeah, well, 40 more followers, and I'll start emptying out my garage. Well, Ryan, we have a very special guest tonight. He is the co-founder, president of Skyline Attractions, and also one of my favorite people in the industry, Jeff Pike. Wow. Jeff, how you doing? How about that? One of
2: your favorite, huh? That's, yeah, that's yeah. Awesome.
0: yeah. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today.
1: Awesome. Yeah, we, we're honored to have you here. We really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us this evening. So tell us about yourself and what you do.
2: Well, I am, as Don mentioned, I'm the president, one of the co-founders of Skyline Attractions, along with my original co-founder partners, Bill Weidre, Chris Gray, and Evan Soulier. And I think those that, that know me know that I'm a, I'm a coaster nut, first and foremost. I've been a coaster nut my whole life. I grew up going to Kings Island. I grew up in Springdale, Ohio and my father introduced me to roller coasters at a very young age the screaming demon the racer those were two of the very first coasters that i rode and i worked my way up to the beast finally rode the beast when my older sister kept making fun of me for being too scared to ride it came off the beast and i was terrified i was crying i was i was absolutely inconsolable (laughs) until about an hour later Mm -hmm. i think the the story is familiar for a lot of roller coaster people right you get over that first hump yeah. And then you're hooked. You know, you you obviously have uh, have been hooked into roller coasters for quite a while, Ryan. You're you're part of the business. Uh, it gets under your skin, and it and it and it just keeps clawing at you. And it it really focused me. So from the time I was a young child, I knew I wanted to make roller coasters. I remember asking my dad, "Hey, how do you make a roller coaster?" He goes, "I don't know. I guess engineers do." And I said, "Aha! There you <laughs> go. Yeah, I got to be an engineer." You know, I had no idea what an engineer was. I had no idea. I just knew that that's what you were supposed to be to make roller coasters. So my entire life was dedicated to to getting into the business. I uh, I, I had some unorthodox methods. I had some more orthodox methods. I uh, did some internships through school. I met a lot of folks, did a lot of networking, uh, and ended up landing a position with Great Coasters uh, in 1998. Got to work with them on Roar and Wildcat and Lightning Racer and learned a lot from Mike Bootley, who, in, in my opinion, was one of the greatest wooden roller coaster designers ever to walk the earth. Uh, was fortunate that when Mike retired, Claire kept me on. Uh, Claire Hain, uh, the current owner of Great Coasters International, spent a lot of time with Claire. Worked for a year out of his kid's playroom when we were we were still very small. We were still searching for new projects after we had finished up one of the uh, one of the projects that we did for Hershend uh, out at Celebration City. Uh, but fortunately, Claire has a, a unmatched work ethic and a just an incredible desire to succeed. And I kind of was along for that ride, and I was able to to get my feet wet on roller coaster designs all over the world. And so now I own my own company, uh, along with my partners, and we're expanding out of wooden roller coasters, and we're, we're kind of reaching for new and innovative things and uh, just trying out some new ideas.
0: Well, you just told us a little bit about your journey. Um, you have what I think the enthusiasts would consider a dream job, uh, yes. Jeff. So. Uh, just talk about what that's like every day to, you know, this is something you wanted to do. You're doing it. Uh, you know, what's that like to, to really be living that dream?
2: That, that's a great question. And, you know, and it does seem like a dream job. To me, it's like I said, I've always wanted to do it. I was blessed and fortunate to be able to to kind of make sure that I was in the right place at the right time. It is a job. I mean, I think that that kind of gets lost in a lot of places. Yeah. It's it's work. It's a lot of work sometimes. It's a lot more work than most people really realize in the beginning uh, a lot of folks when they're starting out in the industry myself included you kind of have this idea that you're going to be you know drawing pictures of coasters and coming up with cool ideas and how oh, the, hell, the hell's going to be here and i'm going to talk to the customer and see what they want and that stuff happens that's you know that's an important part of the job it's also about five percent of the job there's 95 percent that is much more mundane but absolutely necessary on the detail side of things, on the execution <coughs> side of things. A lot of sitting in front of your screen, a lot of sitting on phone calls, a lot of travel, uh, you know, getting, getting, getting dirty. I I've, I've just got the grease out of my fingernails from my last trip that I went <laughs> on last week. So it is a lot of hard work. It's not standard hours. Y- you get the idea that you're, you're gonna have a, a salary job and you're gonna work 40, 45 hours a week. Sometimes we work 45 hours a week, not often. Um, usually it's more. And the hours are late into the night sometimes. You're commissioning a new ride. Sorry, you're not working 9 to 5 when a new ride is being commissioned because you've got a crew that's out there trying to do landscaping from 6 in the morning until noon. You've got a crew that's out there trying to finish up a punch list in carpentry from noon until 4. You've got a uh, operations crew that needs to do training on certain aspects of it. and They have it from 4 until 9 p.m. And then maybe at 9 p.m., you and the controls people get to get the ride and actually figure out you know, ways to make it work and that goes until three in the morning or four in the morning, or until you get so damn tired, you just say, you know what? We'll start again tomorrow.
1: <laughs> well, obviously a lot of hard work goes into this, and I don't think that anybody was uh, too blind to that fact, but um, besides the fact that you know it, there's there's a lot more mundane and a lot more operational things involved and a lot of long hours, what are some of the things that surprised you about working in the industry uh, as opposed to what you envisioned as like a kid growing up wanting to design roller coasters
2: no oh, man, that's a great question and I'm, I'm surprised every day i think one of the biggest surprises to me is when when you see an amusement park and the size of it and how big it is you think man whatever industry creates these and operates these must be huge and the reality is it's not a very big industry and you guys have been around it long enough you see the same people over and over again you get to know the same people when you go to the the events like iapa which is the trade Mm -hmm. show for the amusement park industry Uh, it really is a lot more tight-knit and a lot smaller than a lot of people realize even companies that are responsible for hundreds of millions of dollars of product going out every year tend to be fairly small you know, 20 25 employees 50 employees is a lot for a company in our business and so it's i think that was a (coughs) real big surprise is that you get to know these people these are the people that you're going to see all the time. So it's that was that was one of the eye openers for me. Another eye opener and I think this is probably valid in business in general. I you know I went to engineering school. I didn't go to business school. I had to sort of feel my way through operating a business with Claire when Claire was had taken over from Mike. I got to be on the front end of a lot of the negotiations of the sale of rides. Uh, I was involved in a lot of the actual marketing process for those things and um, business works differently in everybody's In everybody's you know one one person comes to you and says i think i'd like to buy a wooden roller coaster where do i mail a check and we get a personal check off off of his <coughs> bank draft uh you know written yeah. in hand you know handwritten ink with the down payment of 10 percent on the amount of a roller coaster some people do business that way some people do business where they're not going to finish turning over a deposit until you've got a contract that's this thick mm-hmm. that literally goes through every single detail so it's everybody does business differently and there's no one way to to sell a ride or to generate a contract or to execute a project and so that was real that was real insightful for me
0: now jeff you know i know like in my career in the industry and i remember my first press release my first event that i did you know all those first I remember those uh, but what about for you? Your first actual theme park project, and what did that mean for you?
2: Well, so the first experience I got in a theme park altogether, as uh, on the on the working side of it, I was a ride operator, and uh, I always wanted to be a ride operator. And my first ride operating gig was at Kentucky Kingdom. It was right after Ed Hart took over from the original owners of Kentucky Kingdom and really wanted to turn it into a a real thrill park. So that was super exciting to me. I got to I got to operate Thunder Run. I got to operate the old Intamin wooden shoes that used to be here at King's yeah, Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool OD Hopkins Flume Ride, Mile, Mile High Falls. I got to operate fantastic Vicoma Carousel. I you know, in Kentucky Kingdom when when Ed bought a lot of that equipment, he, he didn't go cheap. And the Vekoma Carousel that's at Kentucky Kingdom is actually all wood-carved horses, custom wood-carved horses, and at the time it opened, it had a fanfold band organ in the middle where it had the, the balsa wood fanfold uh, music punches mm-hmm. that would play. So I got to learn how to maintain and repair those from from the crew. So that was a lot of fun. That was uh, a really cool experience for me, as you know, I was just in school at at Louisville. Go cards.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's a music theme carousel isn't it, it ha- so, so yeah, it's a little bit it, different it, yeah. from horses and you know different animals to ride um so what would you say are some of the most rewarding parts of of doing what you do
2: you know we were talking about it earlier the the, the most rewarding part is it's it sounds cliche but it's seeing the people enjoy what you've put so much time and work into it really is It it can be it can be incredibly stressful sometimes i mean absolutely incredibly stressful as you work through one of these projects and there are times when you go my gosh is this really worth it you know <laughs> is this really worth the time and the headaches and the effort and uh, but at the end of the day when you're standing there the, the ride's running and you can just kind of hang out at the exit and you can hear the feedback of people you know everybody doesn't like everything but man when you hear the kids coming off like oh my gosh that was cool let's ask mom if we can go again it, it really does it kind of hits you right here it's like mm-hmm. all right this worked you know it, it was uh
0: it, it was worth it in the end you know a lot of uh, kids growing up you know if they're sports fans they have their heroes that they look up to and it works the same way in our industry too so who were some of your heroes you know that's a good one uh, curtis summers
2: i didn't know it at the time when i was when i was first getting into coasters uh, but curtis summers was a, a structural engineer who had an office here in cincinnati in Madeira. And he worked very closely with Charlie Den. For people that know the history of wood coasters in our in our industry, uh, Charlie and Curtis were responsible for a lot of sort of the the big yeah. new projects that came out in the 80s and in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, I, my mom used to bring me to a library as a kid. This is before the internet. We're you know I'm dating myself. You know we couldn't get online and go, you know, email folks. So. Once a year, I would go to the library and I'd pull out this book from the library that was like a guidebook for amusement parks. I forget who even published it now. Um, and it had addresses in the back for all these different parks you know, Six Flags and Worlds of Fun and, and Magic Mountain. So I would spend a day in the back of that book copying addresses onto envelopes and writing letters, handwriting letters. Sometimes if I was feeling really, uh, really ambitious, I would type them in my typewriter, and <laughs> fold these letters up and send them off, and then wait around to see if anybody would answer me. It was always like, "Hey, what's going to be new at your amusement park this year? Is there anything cool you can share?" All the same stuff that people like to ask now, but they have instant access to it, you know, online, where they can get on these groups and forums and stuff. Uh, that was sort of our discussion forum of the time. Write the letter, put it in the envelope, mail it away, uh, including to places like Kings Island. Uh, and I would wait through the summer. Everyone, I'd get a package. A media package would show up, you know. I I still have an Amazon Falls media package. It's got a bunch of stuff stuffed in it from that year, and one year I got a Six Flags Over Texas package back, and it was uh, the year that they announced the Texas Giant, and I was like, holy. That is, that's awesome. The Texas Giant is the biggest, and I was I was huge into wood coasters. I mean, the beast is what got me hooked. So I was a wooden coaster kid at the time. Before I knew that it was cool to be a wooden coaster kid, and so I see that I see this Texas Giant picture, this rendering, this drawing that they made, and I said, I've got to go there. I'm like, Mom, you know, can we go to can we go to Texas next summer? We we're going to do a Texas. And at the bottom of that media, you know they they they've got like all the bullet points that you know mm-hmm. that you're supposed to to put into your articles that you write. And at the bottom it said Ride Engineering by Curtis D Summers Inc, Cincinnati, Ohio. And my jaw about hit the floor. Oh, that's where I live. I live in Cincinnati. This is, this is serendipity. So now I don't know if most of your viewers know this. Back in the day there was this book that was published and you could open it and there would be phone numbers in it from the, the various people that lived in your community. It was a phone book. And it was just this. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I remember had those. like
2: all these <laughs> listings. For, so I thought, well, I'll look this guy up in the phone book. And I did. And I looked at him and right there. It Curtis D. Summers in Madeira. So I pick up the phone and I call and I call and say, hi, my name's Jeff. I'm calling for Curtis Summers because I want to make roller coasters someday. And I just read that he was involved with the Texas Giant. And I will never forget this woman, her name was Phyllis Pasquini. She was the uh, the receptionist for Curtis for almost his entire career. I got to know her so well as a kid. I would call every four days, you know, and, oh, hi, Jeff. Yes, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Summers isn't in today. One day, she goes, Jeff, yes, Mr. Summers is here and he would like to speak with you. So I go, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to talk to Curtis Summers. So he, he hops on the phone and it's, you're very mad. Like, oh, well, hi, Jeff. You know, I hear you've been calling Phyllis quite a bit. I'm sorry I've been able to. Why don't you come up to the office and talk to me? That was awesome. So I tell my mom, "Mom, I'm going to go up to Madeira. You got to give me a ride up there. I think I was like 11 or 12. 11 or 12. Yeah. I said, "You got to give me a ride up to Madeira." Said, to Madeira? I said, "Well, there's a guy that designs roller coasters up there that he, he would really like to speak with me." So mom, mom, was really excited. She she thought this was so cool. She, we went out, and bought a suit. I got a suit. I I meant to bring it. I almost brought. I have a picture of me and Curtis Summers in our suits with our pudgy bellies and our red ties, standing next to each other. I have it hanging on the wall behind me as I work now. Uh, If you're ever on a Zoom call with me, you'll see it behind (laughs) me. Uh, So I got to go and meet with Curtis Summers and he was the nicest, most gracious person that I have ever met in this business. And he sat with little 12-year-old, excited me, and just went down the line, hey, if you want to make roller coasters, here's what I would recommend you do. Stay in school. Get a good engineering degree. You don't have to go to MIT. You don't have to go to, you know, to some top name school. But get a good degree. Talk to people in the business just like you're doing. You're already putting yourself in a position to to you know be ahead of the game just by doing what you're doing right now. And he spent the entire day, I mean, six hours. And the guy was super busy, you know, and, and he spent six hours, in, introduced me to everybody in his office. I'm pretty sure that's the day I first met Larry Bill. He was working there. I think Dennis McNulty was working there at the time. Um, I can't remember 100% if I met him or not, but like he introduced me to everybody. And, you know, Curtis and I kept in touch quite a bit uh, afterward, you know, we talked frequently. Um, and his wife, Mary Louise also got to know me really well. And when Curtis passed, uh, Phyllis and Murray louise called me and asked me to come up to the office, and they gave me this box full of some of the mementos that Curtis had accumulated over the years, and they they gave me his desk that he was working at his office, and that's the desk to this day that I still use when I work on my designs. I use Curtis Summers' old roller coaster designing desk, and that's what's in my house right now. Wow.
0: You mentioned the Texas Giant. I had a chance to ride that. Not long after it opened, 1990 yeah. When it was new, oh my god! <laughs> it that was the that was a, Texas Giant, yeah, and that was a phenomenal ride, wasn't it? Yeah, it sure was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's funny that you mentioned like Curtis Summers having an office in madeira and stuff, because I remember when I was um, first researching the industry, uh, you know, when I was a little oblivious going into it, um, just re- having such an eye-opening situation with how much of the inter- industry intersects in the Cincinnati area, because you got to think you've got—I mean, obviously you're up here. So that's a connection. Um, Gravity Group is is in the Cincinnati area. International Theme Park Services. Togo used to have an office here. Uh, Everybody, you know. Um, People don't realize that. Cincinnati is a big hub. And, you know, Kings
2: Island is, it's not an accident. Kings Island and and all of the effort that went into building that park spawned and and grew a lot of experience and talent. And a lot of it just kind of put down roots here in Cincinnati and stuck around after Taft um, employed so many talented and creative people.
1: Yeah, I mean, speaking of DIN, Din Corporation, which you know that can you can trace them back to you almost with GCI. If you look at the, the heritage, you know. Yep. Um, so you know, we, you know, you mentioned that you what you, your path as far as how you became an engineer. And obviously, like not everybody can can call you every week or call Curtis Summers or. I whatever. don't
2: mind if you do. By the way, I might not be able to answer. We're going to uh, put his cell phone
1: number up on the screen. <laughs> but so you know. It, one of the things that that i know that you 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 actually have some involvement for uh mentoring people um what, what's your yeah. program called uh so
2: we have we have a program called SkyNext that mm-hmm. we've done several years uh, it, it took a hiatus during covet and then we did uh, a virtual SkyNext mm-hmm. last year we're still we're still looking at trying to ramp that up again this year uh, but yeah SkyNext was an opportunity because i curtis gave us so much time you know and there's a lot of there's a lot of kids that would have loved to have been in my place right. at that time uh, and you know I think part of it was just because I was willing to kind of pick up the phone and bug people until they got so tired of me that either they said okay or they told me to buzz off uh, but I, I think that being able to show people a path forward that you know it is a small industry and it is a competitive industry. But if your heart's in it and if you put in some work there's there's ways to get into this business you know and and you can either do it the straight on direct way like i did a lot of people come in you know from from the periphery and end up in certain positions there's a lot of ways to get into it so SkyNext was a way for us to gather together a whole bunch of young folks uh uh, some late college early in their in their professional careers Uh, generally we had a few high school kids that were particularly ambitious uh, we'll do about sixty or seventy people, and we spend the whole weekend. We have presentations. We'll bring in guests. From, you know, we've had uh, we've had people from RMC. We've had Disney people. We've had Universal people. People from uh, Sally Dark rides. Uh, we've had one of one of our best ones was Jack Mori. He was a lot of fun having down as a as a presenter. Uh, So, yeah, we have, we just kind of, it's a really informal thing. We'll do presentations during the day, and then we give a lot of opportunities for people to just network with the folks that are there among themselves and among the professionals that are hanging out. Uh, We serve donuts, and we will serve Skyline Chili uh, every time, and if you haven't been indoctrinated into the Skyline Yet, everybody's got their you know, first opportunity to try out Skyline Chili at Skynext
1: as well. We will touch on to Skyline Chili okay, good. later in this episode. All right. um, so, uh, you know, you talk a lot about like networking and stuff like that, but wh- what are you as an employer looking for when you hire employees? Like, let's say somebody that's young and, you know, two or three years out of college or something, but probably ready. Yeah. Uh, what kind of skills are you looking for? Like, what kind of activities are you looking for?
2: I, well, I think one of the biggest things that we look for is, is the ability to communicate. It's, it's really difficult to get a sense of how talented or how capable of somebody is of something if they can't communicate it well. And people communicate in different ways. Some people do really well in written communication, and that's fine. Um, some people do really well talking. I, I'm a talker. I, I'm, I'm less of a writer, more of a talker. and and we recognize that but just being able to get your message across here's here's what i want to do here's why i want to do it Mm -hmm. here's what i can bring to the table here's some new ideas that i think you know we might be able to implement uh we're always looking for people that are willing to kind of go the extra mile and and not just uh kind of come at us with a boilerplate approach uh you know we have we found a couple of our absolutely best employees uh, during Mm SkyNext, and it was uh, one of them was, a. we just kind of had this really informal roller coaster design contest. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the participants in the contest just came up with this incredible, over the course of like 30 minutes, this incredible concept and design, and we're like, that is really fantastic. You know, what, what gave you those ideas? And, and you know, he kind of went into, well, here's here's what I thought worked well on coasters that I've on. And here's what I didn't think worked so well. and you know, I, I use this algorithm to be able to process these kinds of elements differently. And, you know, we're just sitting there with our eyes. We're like, wow, you know, this, he's got it, you know? So people that are willing to communicate with you, that's, that's number one, smart people. I mean, there's, there's a lot of smart people and, you know, there's a lot of smart people that do really well under a lot of different situations. And there's smart people that, you know, in this kind of business where you've got to come up with new ideas and, and everything's working quickly, uh, you know, we like smart people, but that's not just going to be on its own enough to, to to get you into the business. You got to be smart, and you got to be
0: willing to open up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right now, Jeff, you started working for Great Coasters International, and then started your own company, Skyline Attractions. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit—that the story behind that. Wow, I mean, that's—I uh,
2: have a long history with Great Coasters. You know, I think I said I started in '98. I think it was '98, '98 or '99, somewhere right around there, uh, and. You know we had it had gotten to the point where we were doing a lot of coasters and gci was selling a lot of things internationally a lot of work in asia a lot of work in europe and when i was young and i didn't have a big family that was very exciting and interesting and i got to go a lot of new places and meet a lot of people as my family grew and as things kind of you know i had more responsibilities at home the travel started to become a little bit more of a burden than than excitement and we had some ideas that we really wanted to implement and you know and, and for his part, Claire, I think, is the best in the business at just building wooden roller coasters. You know, if, you, if you're going to get a GCI ride, you know what you're going to get. It's going to work. You know it's going to be there on day one when they're ready to open the ride. Uh, but we were, we were really wanting to, to sort of spread out a little bit. We had some really cool ideas for some wacky things. Uh, games you ride, like we want to integrate rides and games. We had these cool ideas for really simple kiddie rides. And, you know, I think having our own business and having an opportunity to explore those ideas was really the impetus for us to get together. And say, all right, let's try Skyline. Now, it was you know, it was it was a big change. It was a big change for Claire, and it was a big change for us. Um, and you know, like with any big change, there's always going to be time that you got to sort of figure out how that relationship is going to work. Uh, but we're very fortunate that you know, Claire is 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 he's a forward looking guy. He wasn't vindictive, and I think we kind of realized that we could still work together. We could still benefit each other tremendously. Uh, and we still got to design roller coasters for him and he still got to build them so that was a it was a kind of a win-win i think all around for us now it was hard you know starting your own business anybody that's thinking about starting your own business it can be very rewarding it can also be very very difficult it's um, you've really got to be ready and prepared for the real difficult conversations both with your partners with customers Uh, you know you, you no longer have a level of insulation where you know claire who was the owner could could kind of placate things, you know, with customers if things were going well. Now it's, you know, it's up to the owners of the business to make sure that you deliver, uh, and it's uh, it's tough. It's financially straining. Uh, it's especially in a business like ours where the barriers to entry are incredibly, incredibly high. Uh, just designing and, and implementing a new product with the level of scrutiny that roller coasters and amusement rides get, uh, it's it's challenging. But in the end, I think it was still the right decision. We've come up with a lot of cool ideas. We've had some hits. We've had some misses. um, And that's just kind of the way it goes. Uh, But we've got some really cool big hits that uh, that I think you're going to see a lot more rolling out here. Uh, Between us and Great Coasters, I think the future is real bright.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more just as an outsider looking in. Um, So you made waves in the industry. I remember like... It was probably about five years ago at this point when you announced like the Skywarp and the, yeah. the variants of that. Um, so there were two installations uh, of, the, of the Skywarp model, Skywarp and Norbit. Sure. Um, what was it like working with SeaWorld and Six Flags uh, for those installations knowing that they were prototypes? Yeah. What, what's that process like?
2: Well, that's, that's a really great question. And, you know, prototypes, no matter, how, no matter how well it works on the computer, no matter how many times you've run the simulations, Prototypes will always have prototype challenges. And I think that there's, there's few industries where prototype challenges can be a bigger make or break than in our industry because there's a limited window of time to operate this attraction. Usually people have a, a very set operating schedule, starts in you know, April and goes until October or whatever. And if they can't recognize their return during that first period in that first year, it's a big challenge for them so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of appetite for really stretching out and 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 buying expensive prototype equipment we were very fortunate that six flags at the time they did have an appetite for it i think you know and and i i can't speak to whether it was part of their corporate strategy but they were not shy about buying prototype equipment and knowing that I think sometimes that it was going to be a challenge, uh, particularly working with Tom Ivan and Larry Chicola at the park. I mean, it, those were those were a big decision for them you know, to to have to mull through and to pull the trigger on and, and give us an opportunity to build uh, an ambitious prototype like that. Uh, it wasn't an easy decision, I'm sure, for them. And I think looking back on it, you know, they're probably kind of going, oh, I wonder what we could do. But you know what? They did it, and I, you know, I think there were we worked our butts off to get that ride up and running for them. We did everything that we could to make sure that uh, that even with all the challenges that we had with the original SkyWarp, that that we didn't leave them, you know, in a lurch, and we didn't leave Tom especially in a lurch, who was very gracious with us during the whole process. Um, so that, it was challenging, uh, you know, in the Sail to Sea world, where we applied a lot of the lessons. You know, one of the big complaints about the original SkyWarp. Was that it was so loud. And it really was. It was a loud ride. I mean, when you went out, and if you stand under a Larson loop, you know how loud to do it. That is, you know, kind of double that. <laughs> That's. It was a loud ride. And it was, a, uh, you know, in my mind originally, it was like, well, it's loud. It's not that big. Well, it was a big deal. You know, people that are operating it for eight hours a day and standing under something that makes that kind of noise. So one of the first things that we did was figure out how to dampen out some of that noise, both both with the vehicle design and also with some tricks on, you know, filling the track and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you know SeaWorld was really helpful in working through some of those things with us they shared some of the research that they had done on some of their other rides with noise mitigation and we were able to implement some of those things as well Uh, so you know it I think altogether the 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 process of building prototype equipment with both Six Flags and SeaWorld it has challenges but I couldn't be more thankful that they were out there giving us that opportunity you know we've still got we've still got a lot of improvements to make and you know we're continuously making those improvements and the next ones that you see, and there will be more, but the next ones that you see are going to be uh, better, more reliable, and I think probably a little bit more thrilling than the ones you see right now.
0: Okay, this is going to kind of tie into what you were just talking about, but you know, you look at SkyWarp, Orbit, Horizon, now all second generation models. Right. Uh, so what improvements do these have over that first generation other than, you know, what you just talked about like with the noise and things like that.
2: Right, well, so yeah, that was a big
0: one. Um, one, you know, one of the other big challenges
2: on both of the SkyWarp models that are out there, is staffing and operation uh we kind of i think made a mistake on the original sky Warp where it took to operate that ride fully we had a central operator and then we had staff at each one of the load and unload platforms and to really run that at full capacity required five operators and five operators is a lot of, of commitment and a lot of expense for you know a ride of that size so that was kind of one of the lessons that we that we took away from that so the the operational characteristics of the ride and the number of operators that it will take we've reconfigured the system we've reconfigured the locations of the of the panels so now on a ride like Skywarp to operate it fully you would need three operators instead of five to be able to do it efficiently Um, one of the you know big technical differences the the drive system that we used on the original Skywarp was a vertical drive tire setup it was you know it was clunky Um, it, it did its it did its thing but it did its thing kind of loudly and, and with some with some, bruh, 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 yeah. and you're, you're smacking through that as you go through. So taking another look at that and using uh, some tricks that we have been developing for some of our other rides with a pinch drive system where the wheels pinch onto a specially designed fin um, and that's mounted to a specially designed drive system. Uh, we think that will overcome a lot of some of that, the uh, the discomfort, maybe a little bit of some of the, the jankiness, for lack of a better word, on uh, on both the original Skywarp and on the Skywarp Horizon. Now Horizon had a, the horizontal drive tires that kind of push sideways on the train. And again, they serve their purpose. It, it does what it's supposed to do. But we feel like using a pinch drive setup will take a lot of that sort of lateral play out of Horizon and give you a lot more of a smooth push each time you go through. And then the track itself, You know, we've developed some track uh, technologies uh, along with great coasters. We've come up with some really cool ways to make some pretty radical track Pretty easily and really precisely, and we're going to be implementing those types of, of, of tricks into our our own tracks for Skywarp going forward.
1: That's really cool. Um, so you mentioned that you, you you expect to see more of them and stuff, and, and I'm totally with you. I hope we see them all over the place. Um, but aside from the logistical <laughs> fixes, the noise, the capacity, you know, things like that that you kind of discussed. Um, where do you see the future of that type of model? Like, do you, I'm not saying like, do you have this like in, you know, in, in the chamber or anything, but like, do you think that there's a market for like a 200 foot version, you know, know, something like that
2: (laughs) there might be. And we, you know, I think we've, uh, we kind of looked at rides that were out there. I think maybe one of the first to really sort of head this direction was the Mars sky loop. You know, it was kind of the real compact, but vertical ride that had a thrill element to it. Uh, and then, you know, Jim Shea came out with the Skyrocket, ultimately the Skyrocket 2, which has been wildly successful. That's got sort of that linear compact, you know, and that's a tall ride, you know, that's a hundred, and I forget how big that ride is, that's a big ride. It's also a lot more expensive than a Skywarp, right. but, it, but it was, uh, uh, so I think there's a, a space for that kind of ride that's maybe not quite as big as, uh, as a Skyrocket 2 or something like that, but maybe a little bigger than Skywarp. That can give you a few more, a few more thrills, a few more elements in there instead of you know kind of the figure eight back and forth. Uh, I think there's definitely a spot. You know, there, there's only so many people that can afford a, a twenty million dollar roller coaster now, and I think there's a, a, a lot more people that are going to be willing to uh, to take out a bank loan or to you know mortgage their family's vacation spot and say let's take a let's take a, a risk on a big thrill ride and be in the $3.5 to $5 million market instead of the 15 to $20 million market. So I do think there's an opportunity for that. Um, and I think that, I think there, there's also a place for the horizons, the, the the lower sky warps, you know, the things that sit lower to the ground mm-hmm. uh, and the orbits, the even smaller Pringle shape, we, we call it the Pringle <laughs> in, yeah. in, in the office. So absolutely, I think there's 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 room for all of those in there. Well, what rule of
0: propulsion system is used for these rides. I'd be careful with that word. But What's that? A, propulsion. I I struggle I, you know I can name all these Russian players when I did hockey, but I can't spell that, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that one. Propulsion. <laughs> He's asking what type of propulsion system. Yeah, you mentioned yeah. that the drive tires just so we struggle <laughs> with that <laughs> word. But, <laughs> <good> <laughs> but
2: yeah, we're gonna I mean we're we're looking at the pinch tires for, yeah. for the, the future ones. And you know we did we did go back. We we work with Intrasys a lot when we work with great coasters. They do a lot of our braking systems. We know them very well. They're very smart. And we worked with them on a LSM-type propulsion system that we had for Skywarp originally. And that's still an option, but it really adds, I mean, that's, a, that's kind of a different, that's a different ballpark when you start to implement the, the LSM system. There's a whole separate control aspect that goes along with that. There's the, you know, there's the cost of the modifications to the train to, to get the, the magnets on them and then the stators themselves. So it's a very reliable system um, but it also, I think, kind of put us at a spot where we didn't quite want to be from a from a cost standpoint. Uh, looking back, it's definitely an option. It's still an option, and, and our trains are designed to be able to to kind of take advantage of that. If if somebody was really you know, interested in a Skywarp but with an LSM, we would we would certainly entertain that.
1: Absolutely. So here's a question that's um, that, that's really always been something I've been wanting to ask you. So. You own Skyline Attractions. You're you're the partner and founder. You're linked to GCI. Now you mentioned your like work history with them and stuff.
2: Yeah.
1: What's what's the nature of your in Skyline's relationship with with GCI? Or do you design the rides for them and then they they design the structure, or like how does that relationship work?
2: Well, so it's kind of like what it was when we worked there as engineers. Sure. So we are we, we do have an agreement with GCI where we will design any. Wooden coaster that they come to us for. Uh, they get they get first pick of our resources and our time. Mm. Uh, so if they say we've got a wood coaster to design, uh, we're there and available to design it for them. We've done all of their uh, designs from from top level conceptual drawings, uh, layouts, proposals. You know, cool pictures, uh, povs, videos. So we start at that point. We work very closely with their salespeople and with uh, and with. The people there at the office at of Great Coasters, and they say, "Hey, you know, we're, we're going to go pitch this ride in Vietnam or whatever. We, you know, we need to have something that looks like this and like this. And uh, we've got our, the people that work in my. I mean, it used to take me when I worked for Claire. It used to take me a week and a half to come up with a proposal, just to just to come up with a sort of feasible layout. You know, I yeah. would sit there with my Excel and my AutoCAD, and I try to work. I mean. The stuff that our, our guys in the shop and in the office do now, it's like, pow, 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 pow. <coughs> they, they, work with, they work with these tools in real time and in three dimensions in a way that I could only imagine was possible when I was working with them. So we, we, we do all those types of things for great coasters. And then when they do land a contract uh, to construct it, they'll sell the ride, and then we will be contracted to do all of the design and engineering. Wow. So we'll design the actual ride center line. We, we assist with... Uh, any existing sort of legacy equipment they've got the millennium flyers and things like that and then we've also designed a new type of train for for them for the future the infinity flyers Mm -hmm. we've helped them develop new technologies for the track we've helped them uh, work through structural engineering we now have all the structural engineering in-house we used to design the coaster and layout and kind of put the columns in and the brakes and then the structural engineering was done by a separate group uh, that was kind of historically outworked, but now we've brought the structural <coughs> engineering in-house with our new partner, Dan Peak. Wow. So that's all. We're kind of the, the one stop
0: for engineering for great coasters right now.
1: Wow, that's incredible.
0: Well, Jeff, with GCI, you developed Titan Track uh, as a product. It's in its infancy. But uh, do you think Titan Track, you know, what does it mean to the average coaster rider? Well, so the average coaster rider? Do you mean the average
2: person who's watching this show, or like the average coaster? The rider? The average
0: coaster rider. I think
2: I think it just means it's going to be wow. That was smoother than I expected. That was faster than I expected. I mean, I think I really think that's what it means. You know, it's I, and I'm a purist. I believe me. I am a wooden coaster person, <laughs> and I was I was among those when we first started see, seeing steel replace wood in places. Like, oh my gosh, what's going? You know, in my hands. You know, what's going to happen to wooden coasters? But if, if the alternative is the wooden coaster goes away entirely because the parks just get so fed up with it, with the amount of money that it takes to keep it operating smoothly, um, if the alternative is it gets torn down, then I think that there is a place for trying to perpetuate the, the art and the essence of the wooden coaster, but give you know, give the parks a little break on the, on the maintenance side and on the, uh, on, the, on the money side of that. So I think there's definitely a place for it, and if, you, if you've ridden I out don't, I don't know if you guys have tried it out at Darien Lake yet or at Michigan's Adventure or if you've even felt the little 50-foot section we have at White Lightning, <laughs> it's different, but it's not, it, it's still, you're riding steel wheels on a steel track, and so you still get the feedback from the track that you would otherwise on wood track. You know that it's different because you know that it's a lot smoother but it's not like it's not like you're on a urethane track on a big you know b and m or you know big steel coaster like that you still get of the essence of the feel yeah. of the ride you just don't have all of the um uh, some of the negative aspects of wooden coasters that go along with
0: it yeah, I' done white lightning and you're right it does still have that same kind of feel yeah it's the,
2: and it's not you know we're not trying to we could we could go in and design a brand new ride from the ground up using titan track and it could do. All kinds of crazy inversions. We've done several proposals that um, that I think you guys would really get a kick out of. Uh, but you know, I think that it's also one of the huge benefits of Titan Track is that it's it's one to one replaceable for the wood track that's there. You don't have to make any modifications to the vehicles. You don't have to make any modifications to the controls. It's like here's a section that's given us a hard time every other year. We're in here spending twenty five thousand dollars cutting off the top layers of track and recutting it, trying to smooth it out you can just take that section out put some titan track right there it transitions from wood to steel right back to wood uh, and you can address those areas that you want to uh, in that way or you can do a complete overhaul i mean it's it's really versatile like that
1: so what does this mean to like um like maintenance costs you met you kind of touched on to it but is do, would you say that ultimately over the course of mm-hmm. let's say 10 years or whatever the life of the titan track is that it would greatly reduce maintenance costs or yeah
2: you know i don't have I, we have good relationships with the parks that we work with, but I can't—I don't see their books. Right. Um, I think the the proof to us that it's worth it is that they buy it and that they will continue to buy it. And uh, the customers that that Great Coasters has installed Titan Track for this year, uh, there's a very good chance you're going to see a lot more of it. So I think that it, it it was it was obvious when looking at the results that we had from a dynamic standpoint on. Accelerometer testing it was obvious that there is a benefit there. I, you know, I can't say monetarily what it is, but it's going to pay for itself a lot faster than ten years. I okay, guess, so
1: I yeah, it's I mean, I, I imagine that probably every project's extraordinarily different. So I didn't think ten thousand dollars or anything, but um, one of the benefits of it is is very likely a lower maintenance cost. And well, so that's what I we mean, you know,
2: really that's uh, that's the biggest selling point. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's why someone's going to buy it. They're not going to. I mean, I think that you can you can make the case that it helps to sort of maintain that wood coaster aesthetic and those are all important they're kind of also rands in the decision making process i think in most business decision processes it's what's the roi on this project right am i going to get a return on this if i do it is it worth doing it and th- there is an ROI on it. You know, you can uh, if if you ever have any guests from Six Flags on, maybe you can ask them what the real numbers are. I'd be interested to hear that as well. But uh,
1: well, they'll totally spill that on our podcast. <laughs> <so>. we'll, <laughs> well,
0: let's talk about the future of Titan Track. Now, let's look, you know, maybe ten, fifteen years down the road. Do you think ground floor up Titan Track, or you know, you're going your, to have your wood coasters? I mean, what's the?
2: Yeah, I think that you know, there's there's space for both of them. There's and you know, wood coasters are still a novel thing in many markets overseas. Wood coasters are still what wood coasters were in the 1940s and thirties here. You know, it's a, it's an interesting, new, different experience. So there's still a lot of room for the construction of, of ground up wood coasters, full wood track. And we're still very involved in a lot of that stuff, but absolutely. I think Titan track has opened up a lot of possibilities for people to have things that, uh, that ride differently, that feel differently, that are capable of doing, uh, more interesting things and that we can really dial in the accuracy of the track and it's economical I mean it's it doesn't require a tremendous amount of overhead to build the track so I think we're going to be able um, uh, both with our products uh, on adaptations of that technology and certainly with the GCI product with the Titan track there's gonna be a lot of a lot of opportunities to to be very competitive in the new coaster market with with something like Titan track
0: let's talk real quick on that too about Titan track so let's say you you build one from the ground floor up or you replace a certain section of track uh, guest rides it for the first time they come back and ride that same coaster 10 years later would you say that they would feel like it's consistent to what they remembered because sometimes people say well it's a little rougher and i remembered you know on a, on a traditional wood coaster yeah i mean so, all all the feedback that we've got so
2: far in the, in the test sections that we've put together it's going to feel the same in 10 years as it does on the first day it doesn't i mean it's a it's a rigid product it's uh it's a it holds its shape very well it's not really prone to uh, a lot of the sort of the 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 divots and and small things that can become bigger things on wood coasters you know wood coasters have a lot of there's a lot of character and there's a lot of soul in them um but then you know there's there's a point where there's kind of too much character you know and and you got to kind of look at what's What's preventing this from being a really enjoyable experience versus just a cool I did that kind of experience? And wood, as as versatile as it is, it's got some shortcomings. You know, steel over time. There's a lot of ways that wood coasters can feel rough. Uh, it can start with the design. You know, some of the designs that came out in the in the you know in the in the '60s and '70s. You know, right when wood coasters were kind of making their comeback, there they were designed with some pretty rudimentary design techniques. I think some of the steel people were pretty far ahead. Of where the, the the wood coaster designers were doing, so even just uh, you know the, going from a straight into a curve, there's there's some things you got to take into account, and if you don't, you're going straight and then you're suddenly into a curve. You have impact loads. Those impact loads can affect this piece of track, which will then create a rebound that can affect another piece. So there's a lot of things that can happen just from the design point, and then just from the nature of wood itself. You know, wood. Uh, it's not consistent. You, know, you look out at trees and they sometimes appear straight, but they've got their own you know, personalities. And so the grain structure of wood can be very inconsistent as well. Some parts of the grain structure are less dense than others. And the less dense parts on a track might mean that a piece of steel can, can sink into that wood by an extra 32nd of an inch. And that 32nd of an inch, depending on where it is in the ride, sometimes you can feel that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be an initiator for other things. So there's just a lot of things. And that's just the nature of a wood coaster. And, again, if they're if they're well-maintained and if people take care of them, they could be a lot of fun. Um, but there's just some places that it's like, you know, there's a difference between maintaining it and keeping it fun and maintaining it just so people will friggin' ride it, you know. Right. And, and when you get to that point, I think there's Titan Track really fills the Yeah, keeping
1: it way. fun versus just keeping it safe, you yeah, know. Right. You know, I was going to um, kind of touch on with, with Don's question uh, and you're a really guy, good guy to ask this, uh, but uh, you know, and this is completely going off the script that I've written down, but um, we've seen a lot of progression with wooden coasters, uh, especially with, you know, the work with GCI. And like, I, I, I've never heard anybody say that Prowler or Mystic Timbers or anything like that is rough. Um, but also if you look at, uh, you know, different wooden coasters, even ones that are rough now, people say, well, when it first opened, it yeah. was smooth. From an engineering standpoint, what what makes it rougher over time? Like, I know that there's you just listed a ton of factors, yep. but if you had were to summarize it in just a couple bullet points, what would you say that that it is? Well, I'd
2: say that it's it, it, the nature of wood is that it's inconsistent, mm. and that gives it charm, but that also gives it uncertainty. And uncertainty, uh, anytime you're building big structures, uh, that uncertainty can contribute to long-term changes in the way it behaves and performs. You what you guys have all stood in front of a wood structure and seen it move when a coaster mm-hmm. train goes around. Uh, that's not detrimental in and of itself, but if that structure continues to move a lot and it allows the track center line to slide around on the ledgers, and now the track is no longer going in the path that it originally was. Over four or five years, that center line could be four inches different than what the designer originally intended, and you can feel that when you ride it. You know, the structure's moved, the center line's moved, and now you kind of do this around the curve instead of you know a nice, a you know, nice smooth little transition there. So all those things contribute to it i mean it's it's uh, uh it's the inconsistency of wood that gives it its its uniqueness but also gives it its challenges
1: so what do you do to overcome that uh because i i mean honestly like if you have a five-year-old gci versus well okay let's say a 10-year-old gci let's give it a little bit of age uh versus like you know and you an older coaster like even one that was built in 95 or 2000 or whatever um, it's very much smoother now so obviously the techn- I, I know the trains are different is that a huge factor a
2: giant factor yeah. that was you know when when mike boodley developed the millennium flyer that was a big sea change in the way he was able to design twisted coaster tracks you mm-hmm. know, the, the the philadelphia toboggan trains are they're, they're rock solid but they're also a little bit less forgiving uh, when you go around curves as a trailer design that has a three-point suspension where you've got a single axle mm-hmm. and a central pivot in front you know and uh, to their credit you know uh, uh, Fred Church was doing that years ago and uh, that kind of fell away when PTC kind of took over the market and they wanted to sort of standardize their box car design and that was that's just what was out there so Mike and Claire I think really kind of Said, well, why don't we go back to this articulated, trailed, the steel coaster people were all doing it, right? Schwarzkopf was doing that in the 1970s. So why not apply that same type of thing to wood coasters? Made a huge difference. The way the trains track around the curve uh is night and day in a trailered, properly you know, three-point suspension, properly designed three-point suspension train. Uh, it will actually roll around curves. You know, some of those big PTC, those long cars, you know, the beach used to have those eight passenger cars, <laughs> you know, these super long wheelbases. And to get around a curve, I mean, they they had to kind of find their way through that curve. And you can you feel them finding their way through the curve. And even with the, yeah. the six passenger ones, uh, you can feel that. They work really well on out and back coasters. They weren't really well suited for really twisted designs. So that was a huge, that was a, a giant thing. And, you know, you've seen other wood coaster manufacturers come in after that and say, oh, yeah, that works pretty good. We should try our own version of that. Um, and, you know, another thing is just advances in the way the structure is analyzed and approached. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, for lack of a better word, back in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of guesswork in wooden coaster lattice structure. It's like, all oh, right, that looks like enough wood. That'll probably hold up. <laughs> um, design standards, you know, the, the wood codes, NDS and stuff, they've gotten a lot better at really identifying uh, how wood performs in certain connections and in certain directions and the engineering behind how the structure holds up that track has really improved a lot. So, where you might have seen 40 years ago, uh, you know, a, a, a wooden structure that from a calculation standpoint could stand up straight, but when the dynamics of the train will go around it shifted a lot, it, it opened up the connections of the hardware, now we have a better understanding of the dynamics of how that work and, uh, and I think the structures themselves are designed Stiffer than they were, but it's not just stiffer. It's I think a, with a little bit better eye towards longevity as well. So those are two big changes.
1: The way so computers, changed.
2: yeah, <laughs> I mean that's, a, that's a, it that's really is. I mean it, the amount of analysis that goes into a wooden coaster structure now versus you know when when John Allen was was working with PTC and building wooden coaster structures, it was like, all right, I've my structures are nine feet apart, so make them nine feet apart. I, I doubt that there was a lot of calculation of of those individual frames. And Mike Booley used to tell me this great story because he Mike used to work for Philadelphia Toboggan. And uh, back then they had just opened, uh, not PTC, but uh, uh, the Riverside Cyclone had just opened and I think that was Bill Cobb was working on that one at the time. And somebody got a glimpse of Bill Cobb's calculation package for that ride at PTC and Mike Booley said, yeah. yeah. and. Somebody came in and was just screaming to Sam High. It's like oh, they they've analyzed every frame on the ride. You know, <laughs> can you believe they did that? So it was kind of an eye opener when you could start to use these tools and really kind of get into the nitty gritty of it. So now you know the analysis packages are this fat. You know, every every literally every piece of wood has what's called a use factor on it. You know, you're you're using X percent of its capacity, and you can go into any one of the frames and point to one of the the pieces of wood and. Look that up in the book and say, "Oh, well, that's that's stressed to seventy percent of its capacity." You know, couldn't do that in the past.
0: Wow. Well, I feel here on the Attractions Group podcast, we're learning a lot. I think we're growing as people. <laughs> so, so uh, Jeff, uh, you know, you were involved with uh, GCI's development of the Infinity Flyers. Um, you know, talk about how these are different from Millennium Flyers. Well, so there was a couple of, of
2: big things that really pushed us to the Infinity. Flyers. One is the Millennium Flyers. They are great for their purpose. Um, we didn't have a, a restraint design that was really intended for more aggressive rides. And you know, at the time, Mike Booley his 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 approach to wooden coaster design was very much as a wooden coaster connoisseur uh, the the graceful hills, the elevation changes, the, and other people kind of came in during that period uh, and and really started to push wooden coasters further and uh, both in how aggressive they were and what kinds of tricks they could do and what kinds of, you know, so I think that Claire really wanted to have something that could negotiate a more aggressive track. And the Millennium Flyers, as, as good as they were, they were designed back in the in the late 90s. Uh, when Mike designed those, he didn't really have those kinds of tracks and those kinds of, uh, of accelerations in mind when he designed the Millennium Flyers. So we looked a lot at, should we upgrade the Millennium Flyers? Should we try to come up with a restraint? Should we... Uh, should we look at the you know the suspension and the the chassis design and beef it up or whatever and ultimately it turned out that it just kind of made more sense if we were going to have a product that was more aggressive than what we would typically do it made sense to develop a new train to go along with that and so that's kind of what the infinity flyers were all about they they can be they're a lot more modular than the millennium flyers so they can be used on rides that aren't as aggressive they can be used depending on how the restraint is configured uh, for much smaller you know much smaller riders uh, and they can also be used on what we call category five acceleration category five or class five type restraints that have a lot of you know uplift or combined uplift and lateral loads and things like that
1: yeah that's yeah, uh, uh i was talking to some of your engineers at iap a few years ago and they said that like uh, some of the turning ratios, is a little bit smaller. Yeah, we can and, get yeah. to a
2: tighter turn. The the, the bogies are castered, which you guys have probably seen on a lot of steel coasters out mm. there. Um, uh, the, they can negotiate tighter turns when we need to. And that's kind of a, an advantage sometimes if you kind of get into a, a, a tight spot on one coaster. man, It'd be nice to, Millennium Flyers, you get to about 18 foot radius and that was, you were kind of struggling to get around that curve. Um, with these guys, you can you can get a lot tighter than 18 feet. I don't remember what the exact number is, but and I think we're down at like the 10 or 11 feet or something like that.
1: Hairpin turns, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, so for a lot of your products, you know, I was looking through your website, and uh, you make a lot of mentions on weld-free or minimal weld designs. Yeah. So... What's the significance of that? Does that impact maintenance cost or does that ride experience or like what are the benefits of a, the, the minimal welds?
2: Well, it's not, I, I would say it's, it's, it's definitely a maintenance thing. It's not, um, you know, you can have a ride experience with a welded chassis on a coaster that's just as good as when it's not. Uh, a, lot of things, a lot of times people don't realize when you weld something, uh, a, a, one of my old professors said, when you weld something, you're basically installing a crack. Yeah. (laughs) And that's I mean you you do. You weld it and and the design standards, the welding standards and and some of the codes that are out there, they assume that when you weld something that there is a crack Mm -hmm. when you weld it. And the question is just how long can you operate this piece of equipment before that crack is big enough to have to shut it down and fix that crack. So when you actually look in, in some of the standards, there's pages and pages of different configurations of welds that show you here's the weld and here's where the crack will be. You know, And so you have to design around that. What it does is it limits how hard you can push that material. When you have a welded material, you have what's called a heat-affected zone that essentially weakens the areas directly around the weld. You have stress concentrations at the toes of the weld that will, uh, that will increase the amount of stress at that one location so the cracks will form and propagate. So shifting to something that doesn't have as many welds, Gets rid of the fact that you're building a crack into the design, and it also increases some of your allowables on your materials. You can you can push a piece of metal instead of being limited to 5,000 psi on a piece of uh, structural steel, like you might be if you had a certain weld configuration. Now maybe you can use that same piece of metal up to 12,000 psi, and that's a big difference in the capacity, and that means you can design a little bit lighter in some cases you don't need as much material because you can stress that material a little bit harder. Uh, You can design sometimes with a a little bit uh, the shaping of the of the pieces you've got a little bit more freedom because these non-welded things kind of get loaded into a machine and they get cut out and trimmed out and you know CNC robots are trimming stuff Um, so you have a little bit more freedom in the overall size of the equipment and we take advantage of some of the the tools that we've got in our software to kind of uh minimize the amount of weight and material while maximizing the work that that material can do so you can kind of cut your weights of your cars and your vehicles and sometimes the cost down it's not always a cost thing even if you have less material that doesn't necessarily mean it costs less sometimes it costs more because you have to uh you have to use fancy equipment to cut that material out but it's i mean it's it's definitely and it's not us i mean we didn't pioneer um trying to to get rid of welds in Equipment. I mean, that's been something that people have uh, have been wanting to do for a while, and now with the advance of certain types of CNC manufacturing equipment that's out there, you can do more and more of that. I think we did kind of pioneer. All right, let's take the jump into not just making it a weld-free vehicle chassis or a weld-free, uh, you know, lift machinery skid. Let's make this a weld-free roller coaster track. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was kind of the big jump that I think we made.
1: So, d- d- is that also? Um does it affect like the inspections too? I assume it's easier sure. to check the torque of a of a bolt than it is to check a weld.
2: Well, yeah. th- I mean, they're different. And right. you know, the, the inspecting welds in, in our industry, there's a very rigorous inspection procedure that you mm. have to follow. Manufacturers will say, you need to inspect this weld in accordance with this standard. And it has to have this acceptability mm. and it has to be documented this way. And that's all spelled out in the standard. And there are companies that specialize mm-hmm. in that in our industry that do that. So uh, there are companies that that are kind of the go-to if you need a full coaster inspection done. These people have the appropriately trained and certified inspectors. Mm-hmm. They have experience with the appropriate documentation. They understand the standards. They know what they're looking for. Um, and it's you know it's what's called non-destructive testing. And there's 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 some work involved in that. You know if you're if you're checking welds. There's a few different ways you can do it, one of the most widely used ways is uh, sprinkling magnetic dust on it and wrapping a big magnet around it and if there's cracks or discontinuities, what happens is your magnetic field has a discontinuity and all of the iron filings or whatever magnet material you're using will c- sort of create this interesting shape around that and you go, oh look, there's probably a crack there, we should look closer at that. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of an art to that too. On the weld-free side of things, uh, you still have to do inspections on like machined components and stuff, especially in areas where there's uh, radiuses or grooves. There's different types of tests for those. Usually it involves some kind of a dye that you would wipe on the surface, or you would do a radiographic test and look inside and see if there's any discontinuities inside the material. Uh, but as far as the track itself, uh, it's it's primarily riveted. It's a structural rivet it's not a bolt that's torqued that uh, that, is, that has a nut on the back side so once you pop it in uh, a rivet kind of is is either there or it's not there right that's kind of the, the benefit that we have we don't count on the rivets uh, a lot in tension rivets work primarily in shear by keeping pieces of material from sliding past each other mm-hmm. uh, and that's how we work excuse me that's how we work the rivets in our in our system so we don't see really any issues with uh, with tensile things, but it's, they're still an inspector. I mean, we still, we, especially as prototype equipment, we still, um, we look to the customers that are running it to give it a good, you know, a good look as they walk around their track and do their daily inspections. In the long term, the goal is for this particular track to kind of back off from being a daily inspection item, move that back to maybe weekly. And then depending on how well it performs over the course of the next couple of years, we might be able to design, you know, have ground up tracks that don't even have uh, but maybe an annual inspection.
1: Wow.
0: Well, Jeff, let's use uh, Prowler Worlds of Fun as an example here. But uh, from start to finish, how long does it take to get a roller coaster open? And what I mean by that is you've you've talked to the park, you got the contract signed, um, and now the ride's ready to open. Yeah, it's usually about a year. Um, they can be they can be longer, but it's usually about a year. There's kind of a
2: uh, parks, especially corporate parks, kind of have a capital process. They know when they're going to be placing orders for new equipment for certain capital years and they kind of have a, a good idea of how long it takes to get a design and get permitting and get the site cleared out and you know, we're, we're kind of in the middle of that right now at, uh, at Worlds of Fun. Uh, so it's, it's a, typically about a year. It can be faster than that. If, if, uh, if parks are ambitious and if manufacturers are ambitious it can be faster. Uh, there are also projects that I've been involved with um, in China for example that have been ongoing for three years, you know, and there's progress made and then there are certain things that happen, uh, and China COVID obviously shut Uh a lot of things down and had things all weirded out for a while. Um, but some of those projects are still going, but, you know, we designed and and completed our, our portion of that project a year and a half ago. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those are still kind of in progress. So, but it's about a year. I mean, a, a big coaster like Prowler, that's about a year process.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you ride, you, you you hang out at parks a lot. You you mentioned that I to did. us off camera. Right? I do. So when you ride roller coasters, or, or other rides, because you're involved in several different facets as far as rides are concerned, do you look at them and be like, I would have done this differently? Or do you draw inspiration from rides that you ride? Like, what's that experience that's, like for somebody that designs roller coasters? You know,
2: that's funny, because uh, my wife was asking me something similar that day. She was like, you know, when... When you're when you're riding one of the roller coasters that you rode, are you like picking it apart? You know what? And the answer to that is honestly, when I'm at a park and I'm there with my family, I just enjoy it. Yeah, you know, I really do. I try to I, I try to separate I try to separate the sort of professional aspect of designing roller coasters. And I try to enjoy it. You know, I try to be there with my kids. I got four kids. They all love roller coasters. You know, it's so much fun to see that. Um, so every once in a while, I'll be like, huh, I probably would have done done it this way. But then I, I'll kind of feel myself getting into that. And, you know, I, I just want to go enjoy it. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to take part in the amusement park aspect of it when, when I'm just out and having fun, because there's a, there's enough time that I spend stressing about things you know, on amusement park rides when I'm at work.
1: Yeah, I guess you want to keep the magic, don't you? Uh, so, you know, I mentioned um, a little while ago, like, I, I remember when, you know, you announced Skywarp orbit and so on and that was like that turned heads at IAPA. Most recently I remember you guys dropped the Paschetti Bowl projects. Yeah. Tell us about that. So
2: that was an outgrowth of the track development that we had been doing you know and, and when Claire came to us and said can can we come up with a track technology that I can use to, to do some more aggressive things we we're kind of in the middle of trying to figure out our own track and we had been told by some of the folks in, in our business you know there's really kind of a dearth of good inexpensive kids roller coasters out there and you know they we think there's a market for that you know you got to kind of listen to whatever people are telling you you know and, and take some with a grain of salt and then if you hear that message enough you know oh, there may be something there so we thought the posghetti coaster was a great opportunity for us to implement this new type of track without going so far and so big that you know people would be like, I don't know, I don't want to be the, yeah, you know, I don't want to be the guinea pig for right. that one too, you know. <laughs> so it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit less of a risk in the in the onset uh, for anybody that would get one, and it gives us an opportunity to kind of build up that technology from smaller rides and keep growing them, and eventually we're going to be using it on big coasters like the Sky Warps and this stuff even bigger than that. So that's what you know, and and to be honest, like I just. I think kiddie coasters are so cool. Like, it just if you saw the racing version of the Pizzgetti that I we did, did we yeah. had so much fun putting that together. I mean, that was just, and I, my kids love coasters, and I rode every every coaster I could with them when they were kids. I've got the picture. Everybody's got the picture of their kid oh, on the yeah. little Charlie Brown coaster at Kings Island. Me and Andy, when Andy was like a year and a half old, on his first trip on that. So there's just uh, it kind of hits me in the feels on that too. That's
0: awesome. Jeff, working with FECs, it's uh, different than working with parks in a lot of regards. Um, Talk about that, you know, what the differences are there and, you know, maintenance being a big concern, just things like that. Yeah, it is.
2: Uh, And, you know, there's parks like Kings Island have a lot of on-staff knowledge to deal with just about anything that can happen with a ride. Uh, From control systems, you know, which are always a, a, a big consideration when you're making a purchase to, uh, large mechanical equipment maintenance to just the ability to operate things effectively. FECs don't have the budgets and the pools to draw from for those those types of things. So when we developed our first couple of rides, like Crazy Couch was, was a kid's ride intended for FECs. And the big advantage with Crazy Couch was it doesn't have a control system in the sense of a, a traditional PLC. It's operated purely by a single push button on a panel, uh, with what we call drive. There's, there's a variable frequency drive that runs. Uh, it's just one drive that runs both of these cranks that run this motor around. And there's no there's no you know control logic that you have to have a uh, a master's degree in and computer engineering to understand. So you can run this ride without having to worry about either having somebody on staff if the PLC. Gives you trouble, or having to call Alan Bradley or Siemens, mm-hmm. who you know you can get on the phone with them, and then maybe they can get out there that day, maybe not. You know, so that's a that was a big that was a big push for us. That's carried over into the Pizzgetti rides, by the way. The Pizzgetti rides also do not have a traditional PLC in those. They're they're also drive logic uh, and much simpler than a standard PLC setup would
1: be. That's incredible. Um, so roller coasters generally have like teardown regiments. Yeah. What's it like for a Paschetti coaster?
2: It'll, it'll be similar, uh, but it's a smaller ride, so it's not going to be quite as, as, uh, as onerous as it would be for a very large coaster. But you'll have to, uh, at a certain interval, the, the intervals are sometimes defined by time, but the problem is parks have different operating seasons. Some parks are open mm-hmm. all year. Some parks operate four months out of the year. So really we've kind of started shifting towards the number of ride cycles. There'll be a ride cycle counter and when you get to 25 or 40,000 cycles, you have to do these inspections. And at certain high cycles, there will be times when you'll have to pull the cars off the track and take the, the you know the 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 seats off and take the body off and take a good close look at the chassis and do some inspections on the chassis and uh, probably replace the bearings and things like that. But they're not they're not you know, really big, heavy cars. It doesn't take a lot of infrastructure. Uh, it's something that a regular forklift can lift, lift up off the ride. You don't have to have special pallets designed. Some of these big rides, I mean, to get a to get a V and M train off the track, I mean, that's a that's a that's a job. I mean, it's something yeah, they that have their own custom cars look, and stuff. Know? I
1: think, yeah.
2: So it, it's it's still something that you have to pay attention to. You know, mm-hmm. and as a manufacturer, we have to tell operators, look, you have to do these things. You have to do these inspections at these intervals. Uh, but the inspections on something like Busgetti are not nearly as onerous and are absolutely something that an FEC with one good mechanic should be able to handle. All
0: right, well Jeff, during the pandemic you allowed your engineers to work on different projects outside of the industry, so talk about that. We did. Um, So we, you know, everybody was kind of forced to come up with new ways of doing things and
2: new ways of thinking during COVID, right? I mean, we all had to do that. Nobody was buying rides, nobody was buying big rides, especially during COVID. Uh, So we did we we did a couple of projects outside of roller coasters. We worked on dump trucks. We worked on uh, Elevator systems. We did some work for we did a lot of still in the industry, but not coaster related stuff some static structures that we did Uh, So there was there was a lot of that kind of stuff that went on and you know what we we have to do it we did we did uh, structural projects for uh, a bank vault up in Ohio, you know, and there were smaller projects, but they kept us going while we continued to to really push and develop stuff like Busgetti. I mean, Busgetti kind of all came together during COVID and it was something that we could work on that was new and fresh while still being able to pay the bills with some of these other jobs. I can tell you, nobody was super excited about the dump truck job. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was it was a job and, you know, uh, not, not to say anything negative about the customer that we we're working with, but it just wasn't our expertise, you know. And I think we realized that at the time that, you know, there are people that could do a very good job uh, designing an efficient, you know, dump truck setup that would work really well that they'd be able to sell out of. And I think we kinda learned we weren't those people. We were people that really have a focus on dynamic systems, things that move, things that um, things that carry people. So then we kinda shifted some of our thinking towards who has these sort of dynamic systems. Uh, People that manufacture conveyors, people that manufacture, uh, you know, belted structures for uh, moving rocks, mining equipment, stuff like that. Uh, And we thought there was a lot of overlap there. That's kind of how we sort of did a couple of elevator jobs and things like that. Um, And we still, I mean, we still have a a whole separate division of Skyline. It's called Skyline ECS, Mm -hmm. uh, Engineering Creative Solutions. And um, we still do that kind of work. You know, if, if, if the calls come in and it's something that we can take on, um, we're looking right now at doing um, some digital billboard structures and things like that. Uh, so we'll still do it, uh, but our, you know, our, our passion is on amusement park rides, but sometimes you, you can't always be working on your passion.
0: Right. Well, let's talk about how often you plan to announce new product offerings that you have. Is it something that's like timed on a cycle as uh, it went they're far enough in development phase that you can go to market? Uh, you know, how do you work that that's, all in? You know, that is
2: a really great question. When we started Skyline, it is in our charter. We actually have a, a document that outlines what we're supposed to do at Skyline. It was one of our kind of our guiding mm-hmm. documents when we started the company. And it was imperative to us that we introduced a new idea every year. And it just, that's how it was worded. It was a new idea. It didn't necessarily have to be a completely new fleshed out product. It didn't, it could be didn't have to be It didn't even necessarily have to be a new ride. It just had to be something new and innovative and clever that we could bring. It didn't have to be expensive, it could be. It didn't have to be technologically advanced. it could be, but it didn't have to be. Um, so we, we, we didn't box ourselves in there, but what we did do is force ourselves to keep thinking even when we were bogged down in uh, you know developing this new product and going through some of the you know some mm-hmm. of the testing or some of the uh, reworks that we would have to do on prototypes, that we didn't lose sight of the fact that we we always wanted to be looking ahead too. uh that's it's a challenging thing it really is you know you get to a, a point where uh you know this year IAPA is coming up and a lot of our discussion right now is what is our IAPA strategy what is our message that we want to deliver and up to this point eight years in we had always brought a new idea at IAPA we've actually won a we've won brass ring awards for best new products a couple of times uh, and, you know, this year, I don't think it'll be different, but we're kind of rethinking what it means to bring a new idea. Originally, it was, we brought rides. You know, we brought a new Crazy Catch. We brought a Strike you up We brought a Spin you in, you know, and and, uh, and then I think we realized, well, we don't necessarily have to bring a whole ride. Maybe we can bring a workable ride concept, and that's where we were with kind of the Sky Warps and stuff. And now we're kind of at the point where, you know, it doesn't maybe necessarily even have to be all the way fleshed out, but if we know that there is... Uh, a spark of something here. Maybe that can be our new idea. Uh, maybe we can focus on, now that we've developed a few products, we can focus on really dialing those in and, and making those function really well. And that's our big push. And at the same time, have some new idea that, oh, by the way, why don't you take a look at this? You know. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I mean, so when you say like bringing something new, uh, just something that comes to mind, and tell me if this is a good example or not. But so you, you mentioned that uh, Pischetti Bowl, uh, that ride, did not have a typical PLC. Right. So if you were able to develop like a way to do that with like the Skywarp, would that be an example of something that you would bring?
2: That's that's a good question. I don't know. You know, and and I think that's that would be up for debate in the whole company. You know, we we have we have. Uh, three times a week, we have full company meetings where we talk about these kinds of things. Um, you know, maybe. And does it count as something new? I think that sounds like something new. It's a new application of uh, of a type of technology onto some existing ride. Can we count that? As, I mean, there's not like a rule, right? right. <laughs> there's not a law we have to follow here, but but we also want to be true to what our intent was. You know, we don't want to kind of well it's green this year and it was yellow last year so it's new i mean uh, that's kind of cheap right? well
1: i think that you know if you change the plc system it would be um something different to bring to market that's something you know? that you could
2: talk about That's yeah. a, that's a, a a key decision point for some people that we could absolutely have a discussion about so yeah i think in uh, the short answer is maybe that would be something that we would market as as new um is it is it exciting enough to garner attention those kinds of things come into play too you know is it something that uh you know we got a lot of press at IAPo when we came out with some of our new rides um uh, didn't sell a whole bunch of them right off the bat you know you right. think if you go to IAPo with a new ride people are going to buy a bunch of them it eh, not quite work like that no <laughs> I, I think you know the folks that are really well established in the industry the Zen pearls of the world and they bring rides they can sell rides right off the iapa floor uh, because people know them, they trust them. They've been around for a long time. We're still a new company, and just just because we bring a new ride to IAPA doesn't necessarily mean we're going to sell a bunch of those. Um, so we got to be careful about that too. So, yeah, it's it's got to garner attention. It's got to be true to our purpose. You know, it's it's a tough thing. It really is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I I, I think that there's like a child in all of us, and like I was, in, I, I've been to IAPA several times for you know business ventures but as far as like you know you bring a ride there you there's a child in you that thinks that you're going to be shaking hands selling a you know 1.5 to 2 million dollar ride you know but that's not realistic but but i i think that is in this industry there's a lot of a problem it's you know i saw this two years ago oh you're still doing this oh cool well maybe i am interested then you know i could absolutely see that well jeff that's um that's all the questions that Don and I developed, but uh, normally at this point in the podcast we do what we call pick six, which is when we find six things in the industry, uh, which is news articles, uh, patents, or anything like that, but we're going to do something a little different today. Okay. So instead of doing pick six, what we did was we reached out to our um, social media followers from you know across the different inter- interwebs, and we asked them if they have any questions for you. And people came up with some pretty impressive ones. So Don, why don't you take the first one? And this is why we want you to follow us, because we really want all these episodes to be more uh, interactive
0: and answering your questions as well. But uh, the first one comes from Coaster Hour on Twitter, and uh, he says, With uh, Zambezi Zinger, if I'm correct, most of the coaster is wooden, with the exception of the spiral lift and the turnaround behind the spiral lift, which are Titan Track. Was there a reason you decided to go with a mostly wooden coaster with some Titan Track or a pure Titan track?
2: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question.
0: Um, originally,
2: the ride was all wood, and that was a decision that Worlds of Fun uh, had made uh, you know, earlier on in the, in the process. Originally, it was an all wood track, and the, the Titan track portion of it came in as we were moving through the engineering part of it, and we really realized that, especially for the spiral lift, it would be a lot easier to control some of the dimensions and some of the the features of the lift if we, had, uh, if we had the steel track in place there. Uh, and then the, the piece that goes around the outside of the lift, that, was, that kind of grew out of the fact that we wanted to have this aesthetic of the spiral lift that was similar to what the original Zinger looked like. It's a different structure, but it sort of evokes the same sort of aesthetic. But that left us with some pretty wide spaces around the outside and some pretty large spans that the track had to go and we would have had to come up with some other intermediate structures underneath that may have taken away from some of that aesthetic. And we realized that the Titan Track is capable of spanning longer distances, so it just made sense to use that track around there to to maintain that spiral lift aesthetic. Uh, And that was something we went to great coasters with about halfway through the design process and said, hey, can we we put some Titan Track in here and in here? And uh, they went to Worlds of Fun, and yeah,
0: are like, yeah, okay, let's, let's try that out. I cannot wait to ride that. Yeah, I'm going to go on record and say
1: that I absolutely did not think that aesthetics was the reason for Titan Track on that.
2: Well, it was (laughs) really part of what it was, yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. Okay. So, all right. This next question comes from Stillwell on Twitter. Uh, uh, Did you ever ink a deal with uh, your local Skyline Chili location? Um, so you, know, uh, you did tag Skyline Chili when you announced it, right? We did
2: tag Skyline Chili, uh, and Skyline Chili, if you're watching, uh, we would still be very interested in that deal that we discussed. Uh, yeah, I think maybe you know the Skyline theme coaster is still in our wheelhouse somewhere. Uh, people don't know that our company is actually named after Skyline Chili. We were all sitting around. You know, of, of all of the yeah. things that you can that you can have disagreements about in a partnership. Um, what the heck to name the company? I think probably brought out the most uh, the most animated discussions that we had, and it took forever. I mean, we had we had ideas going for days, and we're sitting at, a, at a Skyline Chili here in Covington, and finally, uh, my partner, who's not even from Cincinnati, is looking at the cup on the table. He goes, "Why not just Skyline?" And you know, as I'm, I'm wolfing down my fourth Coney, I'm mm-hmm. like, "I could get behind that." <laughs> so, <laughs> So that's how Skyline Attractions was born. And uh, we play with that, the whole chili theme quite a bit. And internally, um, a lot of our internal project names are chili related, uh, and even externally. <laughs> Cracker
1: uh, Bomb, and <laughs> Yep.
0: All right, next question comes from, he's called Coaster Team at kicentral.com. Uh, he says, could we see Skyline and GCI look into similar long-lasting track styles like gravity groups, engineered, pre-cut track, uh, besides the Titan track? or is it something you'd incorporate by default into your normal wooden coaster?
2: Well, I mean that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing and that's kind of a heated topic even internally with us and, and with great coasters is um, how far away from wood track do we want to get? You know, and, and I, I know the, the guys at Gravity Group really well and I know that they all have their heart in wooden roller coasters uh, maybe to a greater extent even than I do and I think there's a solution for that, like if you've ridden the Beast this year, mm-hmm. or if you've ridden the Racer in the past couple of years, it's obviously uh, an improvement over what was there before. Um, you know, I don't know, I think we were headed a little bit different direction. I think Titan Track is really kind of our, the direction we would head if we're going to be looking at long-lasting coaster track that melds well with a wooden structure where we need it. But, you know, who's to say? I, mean, I Anything can happen in this business. It really can.
1: Yeah, and what I'm thinking is that there might be a uh, like a sentiment involved where, you know, it's, I, I, I want this fixed, but I want it to keep it, because wa- we're talking about a hundred year old coaster, Yeah. you know, and you don't want to replace sections with metal or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that there's there's definitely a market for it, but um, th- this is just kind of like a side question that, that kind of popped in my mind, but... The modern like GCI gravity group coasters stuff like that. Do you think that they would need modifications like that, thirty years in the future from now, or do you think they're well designed enough to kind of stand on their own?
2: You know, it depends on which ride it is, what kind of environment it's operating in, um, how much effort the parks keep uh, keep putting into it. I think there's there's really well designed wooden coasters that are fairly aggressive that are. Uh, that are doing really well today. I mean look at the Santa Cruz Giant Dipper I mean that's it's not a it's not a beast but you know it's not a kiddie ride right and that is an old ride but it's really well maintained and it's all still wood and I think it's um it rides really well the cars I think were a big part of that The, uh, the light cars that they run on that ride but they're just the dedication that that the boardwalk has to keeping that ride running the way it does I think it's a it's a great testament to the ability to have a well-run wooden roller coaster a hundred years later, I think there are rides that that we've been involved in, that Great Coasters has been involved in, that could do really well in a hundred years. You know, I would love to see you know my great grandchildren riding Mystic Timbers and being just as excited about it getting off as, as my kids were when they rode it. Um, who's to say? But I think that there's you know there's a lot of factors that go into that. It's uh, you know it's it's really hard to to look into the future. And again, if if the option is the park just doesn't want it anymore and they're gonna get rid of it versus, um, okay, they'll, 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 they'll take a chance with the steel track. Um, I would prefer the steel track option to the roller
1: coaster going away. Of course. Okay.
0: The next one comes from a uh, Kings Island Season pass holder's Facebook group member, Jim Flugel. Uh, he says, what were some of the challenges associated with designing the spiral lift? The Zambezi Zinger.
2: Well, we still—I mean, we're still—we're still in the weeds with that one. <laughs> um, you know, it's different; it's obviously different. We had—we um, had to worry about just the geometry of going through the curve through, you know, a, a pinch wheel type system like that. There have been solutions for that that existed that we kind of drew upon when we looked at Schwartzkopf and his sort of uh, launch coasters, the Bullet. You know, I don't know if you guys remember the Bullet. Yeah, the shuttle coaster also that had a series of drive tires, uh, and there's you know there are some mechanical considerations you have to make in the way the train interfaces with that setup, uh, some degrees of freedom that you have to kind of build in that you wouldn't normally build into a wooden coaster train setup like that. The Infinity Flyers gave us an opportunity because they're so modular underneath to really kind of tinker with the underbelly of that car to work correctly with. What was going on with that spiral lift? You know, we looked at a lot of options on that, but a, you know, a pinch drive system is uh, pretty well understood. Uh, people are pretty comfortable with them. Um, you know, one of the other big challenges was just the structure, just the the vertical structure and holding up that spiral and holding up the, the curve on the outside. You know, the, the the Infinity Flyers, even with an eight-car train, are heavier than the old Zambezi uh, trains were, and so. Uh, you know, we're holding up more weight under you know a, a higher dynamic acceleration. so there were some challenges just in the analysis and development of the structure of that spiral lift as well.
1: How does it, uh, how does that affect in the rain? I know that some of the uh, little kid, uh kitty vacoma suspended coasters can't really operate in the rain. Can this do a little bit better because it's that's a few well, generations so that's, later. A, that's
2: purely a function of your coefficient of friction that you have between whatever material is on the drive tires and the the, whatever it is propelling and there's ways you can manipulate the coefficient of friction you can use different materials you can use uh, different surfaces on the fins you can use uh, more units um, you know if you try to develop uh, a great force on few units versus a smaller force on more units so there's ways you can you can do that and we're gonna have a lot of motors on this and there's a um, you know, it, it's not like we're just going to have one set of motors under the train at a given time. So there's a lot you can do to manipulate that that coefficient of friction. The other big difference uh, on Zambezi versus what you're talking about is the lift angle. Uh, you know, the, the the steeper the lift angle is, the greater the net force acting down that lift is, and the and the greater the amount of force you have to apply to the train to keep it moving upwards. And the lift angle on this spiral lift is significantly less than most wooden coasters and even the 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 Vekoma coasters that you refer to um i think i, I don't remember the exact angle but you know a typical wood coaster lift angles 24 or 25 degrees that we do uh this one's probably on the order of half that like 13 degrees or so wow. so it reduces the the load along the track that you have to be able to to generate as well
1: so i mean we can surmise it probably better you know because it seems like the the physics are in your favor with that you know you know, yeah,
2: I mean it's. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get it out there, and uh, you know, there's going to be some tweaking probably that we're going to do. There's going to be some lessons that we're going to be learning with some of these things, but yeah, we have we have a high level of confidence.
1: That's cool. Um, so the next question is one that was posted on kicentral.com from the user Robbie01. Um, so let me s- summarize the, the question. So I remember some guy standing on top of Tomb Ra- the old Tomb Raider the ride building when they announced Mystic Timbers. I don't know who it was.
0: No idea myself. And either. he was
1: asking the question, what's in the shed? How much of that did you know? So like... In, in we didn't lo- know
0: any of it.
2: <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like, I had no idea what they were doing in the shed. You know, our our Skylines portion was you know designing the roller coaster. Everything that went around that, you know, we were just kind of just as excited to see what it was as everybody else. I kind of knew what it wasn't. I knew some people were speculating, you know, that maybe there was certain things happening in that shed, and I knew that if those things were happening, I would have had to have been right. involved. <laughs> yeah, i definitely <laughs> been involved with a couple of those things. So, uh, but, you know, I, no, I was, I, was, uh, I was surprised at the end of the whole process the way everybody else was.
0: Yeah, we've talked about this before, you know, Ryan. That's getting announced. I mean, I'm up there talking about it and introducing this ride. I had no idea what was going to be in the shed at that point. It was like it was, you know, a lot of ideas tossed out, but that's why uh, that teaser video stopped right there was kind of like a what's in the shed, you know. So, it was one of those things we, you know, it was just going to be a continuation until we
1: figured it out. Yeah, what an easter egg for uh somebody watching towards the end of this video or this podcast of knowing that you did not know.
0: No, I mean, we knew that there was going to be like, you know, some kind of show element or something in there, but what that was, you know, nobody really knew. It was still in the, you know, that process of of being developed but uh you know scrolling through twitter here and a question from ben's uh ben densmo now a lot of this you've already touched on so ben you got quite a few questions here so we're just going to pick out a couple that uh, we haven't talked about tonight but uh what is the running surface material on titan track and he also wants to know how do you feel about gold star chili
2: Wow, those are <laughs> two very different questions.
0: Very different. So questions.
2: the running surface on Titan Track is the same, more or less, as it is on any other wooden coaster. It's a it's a mild steel. It's a rolled mild, hot rolled mild steel, uh, and you, you kind of get the same sensation there as you do anywhere else. We still run steel wheels. We don't like I said. We don't have to manipulate the wheels. We don't have to put urethane or nylon on. Uh, you could, but uh, it's not a necessity to run to run the uh, to run the Titan Track with existing wood coaster stock. So you still get that steel-on-steel steel feel. That's that's an important aspect of it. Um, as for Gold Star, let's just say we named our company Skyline Attractions um, and I, you might be able to surmise where my heart is, uh, but I, I, everybody's got their own opinion about Cincinnati-style chili, and we'll leave it
1: at that. How political of you. <laughs> um, so I, I did want to touch on one more thing uh, that Ben Densmo asked, because we didn't really talk a lot about uh, the games you ride concept yeah uh so another question that he had in, in that kind of series of questions was are there new games you ride concepts being developed we
2: have like a um, hundred games you ride concepts that we think would be so fun the problem with games you ride and and what our big challenge was was and you know we didn't anticipate this going into it but parks and we were able to test several of our games you ride at different parks around the country the biggest challenge was it requires the knowledge and the training of a ride operator as well as the knowledge and the training of a retail space. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a difficult hurdle for a lot of folks to get over. Um, operating something that was an upcharge retail attraction as a game with the kind of turnover that you have as a game uh, and the kind of pricing structure that you have as a game. Uh, but also needing to do inspections on it and maintenance you have to have a ride operator who's certified to run it you know and all that kind of stuff that was a big challenge for us um, and we also realized that um, that as cool as these things were um, we we're gonna have to sell a lot of them to keep our company going you know it, it takes a lot of sales of hundred thousand dollar equipment to keep the company going
1: right. um,
2: and we just at, at the time we just kind of realized you know we can sell two or three of these a year that ain't gonna cut it. You know we're we're gonna need to either sort of refocus our strategy or sell a lot more of these. And uh, so games you ride, although we still we still do sell strike you ups, um, we still get inquiries for those from time to time. Uh, the ideas behind games you ride are just hysterical. I mean some of these are just so much fun. Uh, but finding the right venue to operate them, you know, a, a typical upcharge attraction where you have to have the knowledge of retail and rides. Uh, you know, like a slingshot type ride. Right. You know, that's in the twelve, fifteen, twenty dollars per experience kind of setup. And with a two tower strike, you up. You're not charging twenty dollars. You're not generating twenty dollars in revenue out of those. So you got to keep people turning, moving fast. and you've got prizes, and you've got you know the the take on prizes that you got that you got to take away. The economics of it was still. I still think there's a way to make that work. And I still think that if a if a park is dedicated to having the operator there and they've already got a staff that is familiar with and can quickly do their inspections. I still think it's a it's a viable product that would do really well uh, but as far as a big theme park environment it was a challenge for us.
1: It's award-winning right?
2: Absolutely. it's a brass ring award for best new family entertainment center product in five years ago or something like
1: that. Wow. Yeah I remember um, the first time I met you which would have been 2016 or 17 I guess uh, this was before you were doing coasters, uh, yeah. co- coasters through Skyline, of course. Um, and I remember wandering around. And so for those of, I, I had to remind you of this story <laughs> earlier tonight, just full disclosure to those watching, but the, so Jeff and I grew up within 300 yards of each other. Didn't yeah, know yeah. each other cause we're, we went to the same high school and everything, but uh, I had a Fort Thomas, Kentucky as my you know place of residence tag at uh, on my you know your lanyard I up is huge so you can read everybody's stuff even with eyes like Don every year, but um, <laughs> but I remember you know I was just kind of checking out poking through being more of a tourist than anything at that point and I ran into to you Jeff and you were like, you were like oh Fort Thomas, Kentucky you know I, I grew up near there I was like oh yeah, really and you're like yeah I grew up in Edgewood I was like Edgewood. So I grew up in Edgewood. And he's like, yeah, I grew up on this street. And I was like, I grew up on a street, one street over from you. And he's like, yeah, I went to this high school. I went to the same high school. So, like, that was that was kind of uh, an interesting experience to, to be so far away from home and then to run into somebody that uh, lives yeah, parallel to you. Yeah, that was in
2: Orlando, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, a,
1: that was in Orlando, Yeah. Um, but uh, that was a really interesting experience. I've always remembered that. And the other thing that always uh, comes to mind with you, and I might have actually told this story without using your name uh, on, the, on the podcast, but you probably don't remember this, but this really embodies IAPA, like as an organization and, and as a, a convention. But um, the last year that I went down, um, which was, I think, 2019, because you had Skywarp and all that stuff. I remember you had all those models at a huge booth. I remember we had a meeting with a big vendor well, a big park, let's put it that way. And um, we were trying to do the the Wayfinder screens, you know, with, with, yeah. you know, with David and stuff. And I remember, you know, I kind of made conversation with you and I was like, yeah, I'm the other guy from Edgewood, you said you remember me, I don't know if you did or not, but- uh, Absolutely. yeah, Absolutely, but, but I remember, <laughs> uh, like, you know, I, I was kind of made, I was nervous as heck, you know, because this was like make or break for us, you know. And I remember, like, as busy as you were, you know, I was just kind of like, hey, we're worried about financing this stuff. Because we don't have, like, a half million dollars to, to fund this project ourselves if we need to upfront it. How does it work? And you, as busy as you are, as the owner of this company with the new product, took the time to talk to me about this is how you do it. And this is how it works in the industry. And, like, I, I, that's always just stuck with me. You know, so I, I do want to thank you for that again. You know, so thank you so much. Uh, I've told I hope this, it
2: helped. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I know all the right answers. I might have pretended like I did, but I, I don't you know. were
1: completely wrong. I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was it was very comforting, and I'll, I'll, just knowing the fact that like you know other people, because I remember you tell me like when we installed our first ride, I was I was so scared too because I I didn't know what to do. You know, and I just knowing somebody else had been there before. You know, yeah. but anyway,
0: well, Ryan. By the time you got all that out, somebody could have driven from Georgia to Tennessee. Where would they stop in Tennessee? Buckies.
1: Ah, yes. That
0: place is awesome. <laughs> there we go. Yes. Well, yeah. uh, we got time for one more here for you.
1: Yeah, so um this is from the Kings Island Season Passholder group on Facebook. This is from Danielle Benegis. And we kind of touched on this, but this is a really good question. How prevalent are aesthetics with the approach of uh of coaster designs? Uh, with the work your company does, she mentioned a couple of uh, different inspirations that she thinks you guys might have had. But you mentioned that with Andy Zinger. It was like, um, you know, the Titan track was aesthetic, but how much of that plays into the engineering behind it?
2: For us, I think it's very important. I mean, it's it's something, and that carries over from you know Mike bootley when he was designing coasters. He grew up as a, a Cyclone fan. He was a really big mm-hmm. Twister fan. He loved the the. Uh, I think it was a tornado that used to be at Coney Island. Um, that was one of his favorite rides. And just the the way a coaster presents itself, I think is super important. And yes, you have to design the structures to stand up and to do the things you're supposed to do. But like you're creating some that people are looking at as much as they're experiencing and riding. And I think that stuck with I think that stuck with me when when I was designing rides, and I think it absolutely is important. Uh, to our team that does the ride designs and layouts now. I and mean, they spent a lot of time talking about how this is going to look. Sometimes I'm like, guys, come on, really, does it matter? And they'll be like, yes, Jeff, this matters. You know, this has got to look this way. And, you know, and they'll, they'll kind of keep keep browbeating me until I, I'm like, all right, I get it, fine, you're, you're right. And it does matter. Uh, you know, look at rides like the Wildcat, like the Hershey Wildcat, you know, RIP Wildcat, right? Uh, but look at rides like that and just how different and recognizable that kind of aesthetic is for those early great coasters rides you kind of knew it's it's sort of like the way b&m was when b&m was building new tracks and you're like that's a b&m ride like mm-hmm. i think mike and Claire set themselves apart with the aesthetic and that became a big part of their brand the nice graceful curves and the the sloping lines of the structure versus some of the more rigid upright right. sort of scaffolding look of some of the wood coasters of the time so I think it is important. You're creating it, you know. Years ago, when I had first joined ACE, somebody wrote an article in one of the roller coaster magazines um, about how wooden coasters were like a, a, a piece of fine art in the house, and steel roller coasters were like cool stereo equipment. Like there was a place for both of them, but that piece of fine art was something that you know had to have in and of itself something interesting to look at. Um, regardless of what it does or whether you ride it or whatever else. And that kind of stuck with me too. And, you know, look at rides like the Vortex. I mean, mm-hmm. the Vortex was, I think part of the reason the Vortex was as popular as it was and was as iconic as it was is because it presented itself so well to the park, you know. And that was, um, you got views of that ride. You could see angles of that ride. And I don't, you know, I don't know if, if Steve and Arrow did that intentionally or if it was a really, a happy, um, you know, a... a a happy accident, but like Vortex was a phenomenal looking ride. And I think that's why people were very sad to see it go. it was a big part of it. It was, it was so well presented. So
0: that's a good question, and I think aesthetics are incredibly important. Well, Jeff, uh, thanks for joining us on the Attractions Group podcast. It's uh, you know just been awesome, just getting all these insights and uh, just spending some time with you tonight. Now you're going to be in IAP in November, right? Absolutely, I'm well, always there. Yep. We're going to have dinner at the Polite Pig. We'll have to make sure we oh, do we that. Oh, we should. Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll come by, uh, we're going to be down there doing some interviews and some videos and stuff. So uh, if you don't mind, we'll come by your booth and show off some of your uh, models and projects and stuff if you want to uh, have a little bit more visuals. And, cool. Uh, cool. Would you like to come back on the show maybe after IAPA so you can talk about the yes, five or six Skywarps In so case on. you
2: haven't been able to tell by now, I love talking about myself. So I, I will be happy to come on and talk about uh,
1: the things that I'm working on and doing,
2: or I will also talk about the things that I'm not working on and doing. Uh, it's up to you guys, but yeah, anytime. I, so I do really you want
1: to come on the show and talk about B&M or something next time? Or? To the extent <laughs> that I know about B&M, <laughs> sure. sure. And Jeff, we would be remiss
0: if we didn't talk about your awesome shirt there. Oh yeah, I, I got a
2: memo that I was supposed to wear something yeah. um, super formal and uh, and high fashion, and I thought what's more formal and high fashion than my Hawaiian shirt, and look, you guys had the same idea. I, I
1: just want to say uh, thank you for adhering to the uh, the attractions group dress code. Yes. Uh, the last time we had a guest on, he did not wear his Hawaiian shirt, Jeez. and um, there so was a written warning involved so with that. Yeah. I know, absolutely. But Jeff, uh, so I, I know that you're on Twitter. Why don't you give them your Twitter handle so they can follow your words of advice? Well, we are
2: we are at Skyline Attracts on Twitter, and then you can also. Uh, remember what my own twitter handle is you it's that
1: skyline me? underscore jeff
2: there it is okay so he knows it um <laughs> i know i can see it when i scroll onto it but it's like nobody remembers their own phone number too right is that a thing they don't remember our own phone
1: number yeah my mom doesn't know hers okay so
0: i don't feel quite so bad
1: <laughs> i'm in the okay. same boat i don't remember awesome mine. so and if you want to check out his project is it skylineattractionsllc.com is that your website uh it's just skylineattractions.com okay. yeah. skylineattractions.com so you can see all the concept art and stuff so jeff thank you so much once again Everybody, thank you for sticking with us. I know this is a little bit longer than usual episode. I hope it was worth it to you. Remember to follow us at Attractions underscore GRP. Look for us on YouTube by searching for the Attractions Group Podcast and look for us on your favorite podcast apps. So everybody, we will see you next week. Thank you so much.